This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the season finale of The Audio Guide to Babylon 5, episode 22, Chrysalis. Everybody, it is about time. We've been doing this podcast for 22 episodes now, and we're finally able to put a season in the can. This is the season finale. Woohoo! Yay! Oh, no. Yay! Yeah. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. We've got some strange voices out there that I hadn't let out of the box yet. Um, okay, but we regulars can't remember what it was like to see Chrysalis without knowing what comes next. So that meant that we had to obviously bring back our control group, Stephen Chapansky, back to the podcast. Hello, Stephen. Hi there. Glad to be back. And to celebrate this season finale, we've also invited a man who knows a little something about rewatching TV series, Mr. Neil Perryman of Adventures with the Wife in Space, Adventures with the Wife in Blake, and upcoming Adventures with the Wife in Star Cops, I'm sure, <laughs> right? Oh, you shouldn't have known that. I, I, get, I keep getting these emails from Stephen. When's Neil going to do something with Star Cops? When's Neil <laughs> going to do something with Star Cops? Neil, tell uh, those of our listeners who are B5 fans who may not be mm. up on Doctor Who or Blake 7 and all that stuff, yeah. what have you been doing with your wife? I mean, the other thing. I, I, I've been making a career out of forcing her to watch old science fiction programs and commenting about them. And in the process, showing every detail of my private life with the world. It's an interesting occupation. Uh, indeed. Where can people interested in what you're doing, where can they read and or listen to you? The best place to go is wifeinspace.com. That's one word, wifeinspace. And you can, you can watch us or read about us watching Doctor Who together. And we also watch Blake 7 together, which is a bit like Babylon 5 because it's got a number in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and starts with a B. It does. It does. And um, you did something awesome that I've been dying for Erica to do with Stephen uh, during the course of this recording. Uh, not to spoil it for people, but uh, the the, se- the series finale for Blake 7 has a, a, a lot of stuff happens. And, and what did you and uh, your daughter do? We, um, we contrived to secretly film her. Um, unfortunately, she turned up to, the, to watch the program in her pajamas. So um, when I put it online, she wasn't very happy to put it mildly. <laughs> but it was a dramatic. It, it was a dramatic re- reaction. I, I, I and everybody in the world who who was following the wife and Blake stuff knew what was coming, and they were pretty much they were pretty much demanding that you did that, weren't they? Yeah, I'm surprised I got away with it. But luckily, my uh, my uh, stepdaughter, um, she's always on a mobile phone while we're watching this stuff. So the fact that she had a mobile phone out pointed at my wife wasn't suspicious in the slightest. So I think we just about got away with it. But yeah, it was a genuine reaction to a truly shocking moment on, of television history. Hmm. Well, uh, we'll talk about some shocking moments, of maybe not television history, but certainly uh, in Babylon 5 in just a few minutes. But I'm going to ask you the same question that we asked of uh, Liz Miles when she was on earlier. How did you discover Babylon 5? And um, we were always told over here in the States that B5 is really big in Britain. Was it really? No, it wasn't big at all. It was a cult thing. I came to it late. I didn't get into it until um, just towards the end of season two. It was uh, it was broadcast on a channel called Channel 4 uh, at tea time on a weekday, and I usually work then. And this is in the day before PVR, so 
if you wanted to record something, it was very difficult. And also, I was into uh, Deep Space Nine or, and Star Trek at the time. So I didn't really care about Babylon 5. I'd heard about it, but I wasn't interested. And one day, I was off sick. I was ill. And I just happened to be home the day this particular episode was airing, which I won't mention the name of in case it's a spoiler. And um, I thought, oh, I'll, give it, I'll give this five minutes, see, see what it's like. Wasn't, you know, entirely impressed to begin with. And then all of a sudden things started to happen in the episode which I just didn't see coming in terms of what my relationship to other TV programs of that kind, the sort of thing they would usually do, didn't happen. And I suddenly thought, my God, this is really interesting and different. So then I watched the end, the end of season two and then I got really obsessed with finding out what happened in season one and spent absolutely ages trying to track down all the recordings so I could watch them. But by the time I'd actually watched them, I'd already re read all the synopsis online. So I came to season one knowing practically everything I could up to that point. So in the terms of this particular episode, I didn't come to it new like Stephen did. So I'm very jealous of Stephen in the sense that he's, he's a newbie and uh, been able to see the impact of this episode. Well, I'm thoroughly enjoying the fact that, especially due to peer pressure, which is a powerful entry into the world of television, as all of us pretty much here know, since we've all pretty much dragged our significant others into one story or another, is that, uh, you know, Stephen has no real, really, he has no recourse. He has no escape. He has to watch now. <laughs> it was written into the vows of our marriage, actually. Um, so it was, I, I, I am law bound to pretty much carry on with this show, yeah. Awesome. And um, Erica, you've been concerned about keeping Stephen pure, his experience of the show pure. So, Neil, I must ask you to solemnly promise <laughs> that you will not you will not breathe a word about anything that happened in the show after this episode until we unceremoniously kick Stephen out. And then we've got and then we can talk about um, everything that happened afterward to our hearts. Content. OK, I'll try. I'm absolutely terrified of spoiling it for him. That's OK. Erica will only kill you a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're lucky you live in the other Durham. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> the real Durham, you mean. <laughs> Durham Prime. <laughs> So here we go. Uh, so for our audience, and then I'll shut up a little bit and let everybody else talk because I'm hogging the microphone this morning. Um, but what you need to know, our customary entry to help people reorient to the series, if this is your first ever episode of Babylon 5, then you need to reevaluate your life priorities. Because, well, <laughs> yeah, this is a season finale, guys. Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space, with the Narn at the Centauri's throats, the Vorlons cryptic and dangerous, and the Minbari and Earth Alliance wary of each other after a war that ended after future Babylon 5 commander Sinclair was captured, interrogated, and mind-wiped. In the middle of their intrigues, internal power struggles, and fights with pirates and raiders, we saw in about 10 seconds worth of mid-season footage that there's an immensely powerful alien ship out there with a human representative who sees great promise in Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari. That's everything that you need to know going into Chrysalis. And what happens in this episode, it... Okay, no synopsis here. It's too much. Let me sum up. Number one, Commander Sinclair proposes marriage. Number two, Garibaldi investigates a murder, follows the clues to discover a conspiracy against the Earth Alliance president, and is shot in the back by his second-in-command. Number three, Delenn promises to tell Sinclair everything that happened to him, but he has to hurry, because unbeknownst to him, she has been cooking up a plan with Vorlon Ambassador Kosh and is about to literally cocoon herself. Number four, Sinclair forgets. 
Number five, Londo's mysterious buddy Morden returns and offers to solve a territorial dispute that the Centauri were about to cede to the Narn in return for a favor to be named later. Londo agrees, the space battle crabs reappear and kill 10,000 Narns, leaving no records of their attack, and suddenly Londo doesn't seem like a joke in the halls of Centauri power anymore. And Narn Ambassador Jakar realizes that there's another player out there. Number six, just before Garibaldi goes into surgery, he warns Sinclair about the assassination plot too late. There's no need for a boom tomorrow. There was, in fact, a boom today. So that was Chrysalis. And let's just sort of open it up to general episode reactions right now. I will just admit right off the top that I practically suffered from PTSD after watching this episode um, because... In large part because I know what's coming and I know what a lot of this stuff means, it just felt momentous. You know, we're, we're past signs and portents and into stuff hitting the fan. Uh, I'd like to ask Stephen, first of all, um, if you got any hint of that same level, considering that you don't really know what's coming. It felt like almost like a, uh, an end of season Game of Thrones episode um, where it, it didn't seem as much like everything's kind of wrapping up or leading to a cliffhanger. It's just like, here's what's, what's going to be happening in the next season. You know, Jakar is flying off to the Quadrant 37 um, to see what's going on and Delenn is doing something in the cocoon and... You know, it just seems to be a lot. And, you know, Earth is now has a new president and it, it seemed to be not really a cliffhanger ending, but just sort of like here's what's a hint of what to, what's to come. And I thought actually that was that was quite bold. I mean, I compared it to Game of Thrones because that's how they do it these days. But this is back in the mid 90s when, you know, seasons were were told to wrap up good and proper and all the toys are supposed to be put back in the box at the end of the year. And, and this is a lot more bolder storytelling than that. I mean, the safe play would have been to just wrap up a story in case you didn't get renewed, you know? Yeah, but what I mean, but it was JMS's plan to do five years, and he, he must have sold what UPN or Paramount, whoever um, aired this. WB? I don't remember now. TNT? It was syndicated, wasn't it? I mean, how, how do you, how, WB, how do you sort of push through a show that says, okay, guys, here's how it's going to be? Our pilot episode is pretty terrible, but give us five years <laughs> of a show, and we'll show you what we can do. It just seems to be like, that's a remarkable amount of faith on the part of um, uh, a a studio to actually allow such bold storytelling to sort of do that. You know, imagine if like this was the last episode of Babylon Five ever. You know, shocking. Mm-hmm. Other reactions to the season finale? Let's open it up. Well, I didn't just like you. I I didn't come into this cold, and I never did actually because I started somewhere in the middle and then jumped back to the first so I every time I've seen it I've I've known what's coming later but I think honestly I don't think that that I would that it would make a difference I think if I had been watching it like Steven it still would have seemed like I think you know throughout the first first season we're really just sort of getting to know the characters stuff is building up but I feel like it's it's a snowball that's kind of rolling downhill and there are certainly some bumps in the middle <coughs> TKO um, but <laughs> we get but you know it starts out small and, and then by the end I feel like now stuff is finally starting to happen on a grander scale than just than just week to week this is there are things that happened here that are going to have 
have ramifications, whatever those ramifications are, they're going to have ramifications down the road. And it's really exciting that just to know that there's something coming. So I, I think it really worked for me on both levels, having, you know, if coming into it, um, pretending not to know anything, definitely exciting. And, and certainly knowing what comes after, it's exciting to, to just look back and, and see the seeds uh, of what's, what's coming later. So I, big, big thumbs up to this episode. I think it was really strong um, in those ways and in lots of others. What about you, Shannon? Yeah, um, my metaphor is we've hit third gear in the feeling that we, we talked about, you know, having to take it a slow burn, that the tugboat had to pull the cruise ship out of port. We've had all these metaphors. This time it feels like things are speeding up at an odd moment because, you know, season finale, we're going to have a have a gap until the next season starts. Part of it felt like we've been getting to know these characters for uh, 21 episodes, and now it just seemed they were all sliding into place. Um, you had... Veer able to actually hold a conversation and a, a bit of an opinion with Londo. You had, of course, uh, Delenn, you know, going to Kosh and apparently revealing that she and Kosh have been cooking something up for a while now. You have all of these bits coming together, and we see more of the puzzle pieces. And just right from the beginning, I'd forgotten they had the timestamps to to go through this episode, and that just immediately made me sit up and go like, oh, yeah, we have to pay attention to what's going on. Um, so that was an immediate hint that, you know, lots of stuff's going to be happening. It's important to pay attention and keep things straight because um, we're about to take off. And it's also trying to give you sort of a remember where you were when this happened kind of feel. And I think a lot of that has to do with the assassination subplot. But, uh, Neil, real quick, before we go there, does this episode hold up if, if you were able to put blinders on and not think about the future stories and all that other stuff? Do you think this is good television? Is this well well directed, well written television? It's an incredible hour of television. And I remember thinking that when I first saw it, probably in nineteen ninety five, because I was a couple of years late. And I haven't seen this episode for about fifteen years until recently, and I've been terrified about going back to Babylon Five because, I mean, I was seriously obsessed. I mean, I went to extraordinary lengths to get my hands on these episodes. There was a time where I could probably recite every line of dialogue from this episode, um, <clears throat> and going back to it terrified me that it wouldn't stand up to my uh, memories of how good I thought it was. And I saw it again this afternoon as well, just before I came on this podcast, and I'm happy to report not only does it still stand up. It gets better every single time you watch it. It's one of the most perfectly structured hour of television. In terms of Babylon 5 and the story it's telling, the way that the pieces are moved into position at the end of that season is just fantastic. Um, I can't praise it highly enough. And one of the things I love more, most about it is the music by Chris Franca. It just works so, so well and builds the tension. And that last 10 minutes is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stephen, you said that this isn't a cliffhanger, and you're right. It's sort of setting up the the pieces for the next season, but it's also, you're ending the first season with a massive defeat, and that seems really bold. It does, because you always think that they're, they're going to save the president, you know, they're going to save him just in time, but but no, his ship blows up, and it the whole the whole episode is it's kind of odd in a way, it's because it's, it's Sinclair basically getting to things just a tad too late, you know, he, he gets to, he can't save the president, uh, 
quick enough and he dies and then all of a sudden he's in a bar and says oh we forgot about the land and he rushes in and that's too late and everything just you know he's marrying uh, he proposes to um to what's her name uh, Catherine Sakai to Catherine Sakai and 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 even that so he just seems to be a guy who's sort of like slightly one step behind everyone else he's even Um, uh he's even a step behind when he has that conversation with the Jakar uh saying you know I've been feeling like we're at a crossroads yeah, uh, you know, and it almost feels like that that, you know, if that conversation had happened a little earlier, that might have been helpful. Yeah, you know, and he's sort of been a guy who's like all season long. He's like, what, like 276th on a list of preferred candidates to run Babylon <laughs> 5. And, you know, he's just sort of he, he's someone who doesn't know the whole story. Um, and it really kind of all snowballs for him here. And, and, and you know, his his last line of you know nothing's the same anymore um it just a very defeated attitude on his part that uh, nothing is really in his control anymore did anybody did anybody see this apart from steven at the time when it went out originally um for the, did everybody go to it backwards not not backwards but we were later than normal i think right. we, we did watch in order the first time around but we oh, started okay. we started late and caught up so what was it like watching it in order the first time when you got to that point? Was that a shock that the president was killed or did you expect it? I knew that it was coming, um, I think, because I had I, I had been spoiled enough from just information that was out there in the ether. I cannot for the life of me recall what it was like to see this episode for the first time. And that really stinks. And that's one of the reasons why Stephen is here today, because he is he is my memory for me on this, because this is it. This really is good, solid storytelling. It's great uh, television storytelling, but it's so big and it's part of such a larger tapestry. I have such a hard time um, seeing it as an individual piece. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, this. I mean, if it was made today, this this is. I mean, I, I'm I'm enjoying watching the show, but I'm also enjoying just watching you know it as a as a snapshot of TV production back in the early to mid '90s. You know, it's a it's your typical 22 episode a year show, and there's like you know 10 or 12 momentous episodes, and then there's episodes like TKO, which are basically you know or or the other one that had the telepath who who I might point out is conspicuously absent yet again from the most uh, consequential <laughs> episode guys, of the year. Every week, every week he does this. Yeah, every week. No, she's why do they list her in the opening credits? Her agent is a genius cuz she's in like four <laughs> episodes and she's in the opening credits of every single one. Yeah. You know, like what's his name? Um Garibaldi's number 1 I think had more appearances in this season than the, the telepath. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But right. if it was made this year, it would be like 10 episodes a year, maybe 13 or something like mm-hmm. that. And it would just be like, it would just deal with the important stuff. And uh, and I really like it when it deals with the important stuff. And, and this episode, for the first time, I think, for me anyway, I always sort of thought of Jakar and Londo as just sort of, you know, the quark and the... Um, um, oh, you shut uh, your mouth! The, uh, yeah, the uh, Cardassian on on Deep Space Nine—they're sort of there for comic relief, and, and the important stuff happens to the humans. But now they're actually, you know, dealing with you know, because Jakar was just very operatic, and then he disappeared for pretty much you know the latter half of the season, and he finally returns here and is doing something important again. It was—it's nice to see all the characters do something important again. It's nice. Do you think you're changing your opinion of, towards um, Londo there? Because I heard that podcast when you said that he was just a buffoon. It was comet relief. I mean, after this episode, are you, are you beginning to enjoy that character more? 
I am now. Um, I, I'm, I'm still not sure what um, uh, the guy who I call the space mob uh, sees in him so much that he's targeted him <laughs> for better things. But <laughs> I, I'm intrigued now. I'm intrigued to see why they think he is the, the guy who will sort of make up the, the patsy, I suppose, that will help benefit the space mob and the, and the space crabs <laughs> in their future invasion of, of the quadrant. <laughs> Oh, this is I, I get where you're coming from, Neil. I'm just sort of covering my mouth here, trying to keep the words inside. It's so adorable, though, isn't it? This it is. It is. Space, what what was it you said, one. Erica, what, a while back? He's like a puppy learning to walk or a deer learning yeah, to walk. I can't remember my exact, but that's that is that is it. Yep. <laughs> Stephen, you are adorable and you are adored. Thank you very much. Hey, this this is just a first timer's reaction to a show he's never seen before, and to this day still has to think of uh, Centauri. Loves money because of sense. Reminds him of the Ferengi, and that's the only reason I can tell the Centauri and the Minbari apart. They are very similar words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's that's the one thing that I would have changed from the get go. Maybe change them the names a little bit more, but. <laughs> I will point out that this is not the first uh, uh, assassination subplot, uh, uh, the first plot against the president this season. Um, Survivors, episode 11 in the um, Master List uh, chronology, was also all about stopping a plot against uh, the president. And I like that we had that as sort of a light and fluffy B-plot uh, story to a not altogether memorable episode otherwise back then because it does set you up to believe oh they're just going to they're they're going to save them again they're going to pull it off somehow this time and no no they no. don't do you notice the direct reference to the jfk assassination yeah. where the uh the vice president is sworn in on earth force yeah. one in standing next to him as the first lady even wearing the pink suit that uh, yep. jackie o was wearing yeah yep that was deliberate yeah Let's break down a little bit um, the um, this main plot, the the assassination uh, thread, which is really kind of separate from the uh, the uh, the attack on Quadrant Thirty Seven. Uh, that's sort of sort of something that it's big and momentous, but it really is B plot stuff compared to um, Sinclair and Garibaldi trying to stop this thing. How well? Did they execute this part of the the story? Was it plausible? One of my issues was it was kind of convenient that uh, some of the technology got left in the hold, and it looked like pretty crappy prop making, to be perfectly honest. But um, but Erica, uh, what? How did you how did you feel about how they mechanically told this part of the story? I was fine with it. I did have the same sort of niggle in my head that you had when I was like, really? Like one of the transporters didn't get out and nobody did anything about it. Nobody hid the stuff. Nobody came to pick it up. But I mean, Babylon 5 is a very busy, bustling place, which they have made very clear over this first season. So, I mean, I can I can understand that maybe it would have been too busy that nobody would have been able to, to get to it. Um, so I was I was able to hand wave that away. And I thought that that except for that that was really the only thing that kind of that kind of bothered me uh, so the the technology itself yes it was it was kind of wonky prop making and i i'm not sure if it was if it made me squint a little bit at garibaldi or if it made me impressed with him that he knew immediately what those things were and what the settings were and stuff so so i think it, maybe it was supposed to be a, a demonstration of how good he actually is at his job and how much stuff he knows and how many things he's picked up over the years um so i, I 
pretty much everything else was fine. The only other part that that kind of and I don't think it I don't think it seemed like funky writing. I think it was just it it made me upset in the way it was supposed to was at the end when Sinclair was talking to I don't know if it was a senator or some sort of agent person. It, it was a senator. Okay, who is, you know, you're, yes, I'm listening, but you're just not saying anything worth hearing. What, that was that seemed completely ridiculous to me because, you know, this is a presidential a possible assassination coming from the leader of one of your giant space stations. You should probably be taking that more seriously. Of course, maybe she's in on the plot. I, I don't know. So maybe that was why she was doing it. But I thought her performance was p- so poor <laughs> that it didn't sell it for me. Um, but for the most part, the whole plot of the the presidential assassination really it, it really worked even from the very beginning um of garibaldi talking to Devereux and him saying oh this is too big for you like and i was like you know first time seeing this and not really knowing where they were going with it being like whatever and then you know we find out it's a presidential assassination plot oh yeah it really is pretty big so i, I think pretty solidly written all the all around from beginning to end i also liked sort of how it speaks to Garibaldi's character in general. Um, And when something happens to one of somebody that he considers one of his people, he's going to keep chasing it down. We've seen bits and pieces of this throughout the season. And here is um, yet another person that he's sort of taken under his wing. He became, you know, something of an informant and stumbles across this mess, tries to let Garibaldi know and and dies. And immediately Garibaldi, it's like a mission for him, not just an investigation, but he's going to figure this out. That's one of the reasons he, you know, blows off Devereaux's warning, because, you know, nothing's going to make him let this go. He's like a dog with a bone and he's going to see it through, which, you know, also he's so zeroed in on it, you know, that it doesn't even cross his mind, of course, that his second in command is involved in the plot and he turns his back like we heard a few episodes ago he was warned to watch his back and he didn't um but um i really believed uh jerry doyle's performance through Mm -hmm. throughout this episode yeah he was so solid i garibaldi has mostly good moments for me but there are always uh you know a few weak ones here and there and this episode i think was was really solid he was he was intense but not over intense and just he sold it to me from from you know even the part where he's ripping off the uh, the oxygen mask in med lab and and trying to gasp his last couple sentences to Sinclair I, I just thought that was all really good yeah there's always Jerry Doyle always has this risk of going into mugging territory and when when he mugs most of the time it's not real good there's sometimes when he when the script calls for him to be kidding around and that's okay but he doesn't mug for the camera. At all. This is a really serious, really, um, I don't want to call it restrained, but it's a it's a very thoughtful performance. He, he did, I thought he did a great job on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a problem with the, uh, the assassination side of the plot. And it's always bugged me and it's always bothered me that not only, like you said, the technology looks a bit weird. It looks like a 1970s TARDIS tuner. That's <laughs> for the Doctor Who fans. Um, but um, isn't Jupiter miles away? It's like, why would they be jamming a ship on Jupiter from Babylon 5? And if that wasn't the plan and the jammer got stuck on Babylon 5, then how did the actual assassination take place? So all of that never really made any sense to me. Oh, I can explain um, that pretty easily. Here uh, comes the hand wavium. Oh, it's not a hand wavium. It's just, just <laughs> Go on. well, maybe it is. You guys tell me afterwards. So, so the guy that gets killed, he had been loading freight not like that day. They didn't say anything that made me think it was that recent. It was just that he had been loading freight at some point in the past. And then, 
you know, all of the stuff made it out. So the, the, the stuff that Garibaldi is looking at is the stuff that was left behind. The stuff that made it off Babylon 5 was yeah. the stuff that actually, you know, made it to Io and was jamming everything on Earth Horse 1. That was, at least that's how I read it. So it's not hand-waving, it's just that's what I thought happened. But the implication is that he's holding the jammer on Babylon well, he's, 5. He's, he's holding right, one of them. Right, there oh, were right. multiple ships full of cargo. They did. They did specifically <laughs> state that that there were multiple ships full of of cargo, and that there was only one that had engine trouble, so it didn't get out. So Garibaldi was like, "I wonder what all these ships were carrying." Opened this up, and yeah. I mean, it's possible that the other ships were carrying something different, but I, they made it seem like this was a whole box full of jammers. This was a whole box full of whatever else. Mm. Never really bought. That. And if there was engine trouble, then they would have had enough warning to try and pull together their cargo from some other source. Hmm. Erica, I think I will pronounce your statement non-handwavium and canon without being headcanon. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I really didn't feel like I was filling in gaps there. That's just how I read the story. So there, Neil. Well, for me, it felt like, well, for me, for me, it felt like he'd solved the, 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 you know, oh, we found the jammer so they can't kill the president. I think a lot of viewers might have thought that at the time, but maybe that's a good thing in a way. That's a good point, Pushed actually. Into a false sense of security. Yeah. Mm. So uh, we mentioned we mentioned Garibaldi's second in command, who we saw greeting Psychop Bester in Mind War, according to JMS online, just to sort of spell it out. He he was the one who got Sinclair out of his quarters in and the sky full of stars when the rogue elements from EarthGov were uh, interrogating him and, and making him hallucinate and trying to find out what happened in the Battle of the Line. And he mm. was also the one who disposed of the compromised uh, security guard's body in that episode. So th- that that was a year's worth of setup with a minor character. Um, <laughs> well executed? I guess. I mean, I certainly didn't see it coming. Even having come from the other side, I didn't know all of the details of, of season one. So for me, it was it was a big shock because, you know, he was just one of these background characters. And there are many of them in Babylon 5 that, that you see. Like there's a bunch of people in C&C that we see, you know, on, on the ops deck all the time. The same actors, you know, sometimes they have a line. Most of them usually don't. And this guy really, I just put him in the same category as everybody else. And then suddenly, boom, he is center stage with the spotlight light on him and I was not expecting that. So I think it was effective. I think maybe for me personally if he would have been closer to the the forefront of the show, I I don't know that it would have had the same kind of exciting impact. It would have been it still would have been a big impact, but I don't know. It was it was more unexpected I think that it just sort of came from this this ho hum sort of direction and then boom. Yeah, if he was twirling a mustache or, you know, looking towards the camera or the, if the camera lingered on him during the course of the season, we would all have sort of picked up on it. I remember saying to you, Eric, I was like, wasn't he in the show before or something like that? Like, I recognized him, but I didn't recognize him. You know, it was that kind yeah. of thing. Like, I, you know, we've been watching the episodes once every two weeks. So, admittedly, they don't necessarily stick in the, the memory as much as they would if we were watching it once a week. Hint, hint, Chip and Shannon. Um, um, Find us a TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it was, it was good because I, I was not expecting that at all. It was, it was, it was a good twist. I'll just uh, throw it out to uh, Shannon and Neil uh, for any final thoughts on the rogue second-in-command guy. Uh, Unfortunately, I knew it was coming because, like I said, after I watched the end of season two, I just read all the Lurker's Guide on season one from beginning to end (laughs) and then went to ridiculous lengths to attempt to watch the episodes, including pretending to buy a house. I I, I pretended I wanted to buy... 
Yeah, seriously. So a friend of mine want, was buying a house, and she went round to have a look at a house, and in that, this guy's house was loads of VHS tapes of science fiction, like X-Files <laughs> and stuff. And she told me this, and I was like, I know, he must have Babylon 5 season one. He must have Babylon 5 season one. I said, ring, I said to my wife, ring him up, pretend we, we want to buy a house, and we'll have a tour of the house. And while you're having the tour of the house, I'll have a look at his VHS collection. But unfortunately, it turned out he didn't like Babylon 5. He actually said it was shit. Um, so I that he went, egged oh. his house. Yeah. So I couldn't wait to watch the episode. So I just read everything I possibly could. So I knew it was coming. So it wasn't a shock. But looking at back in retrospect, I suppose it is quite clever that it is a not. It's a between a minor and a major character. It's it's, it's it's on the periphery, isn't it? And it's not someone you would automatically suspect. So when it actually happens, apart from the bit where he pretends he can't read the coordinates, which is always a giveaway. I don't know why Garibaldi, the big detective, doesn't work out. Well, what do you? Are you blind? Yeah, <laughs> what exactly. Do you mean you can't can't see it. Are you, are you insane? Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, some other bits, because we're running a little long here, but this is a momentous episode and we've got two great guests. Uh, let's take a look at what happened with Delin in this episode and the revelation that she's got something going on with Kosh. Not that it, boy, I made that sound a little more salacious yeah. than yeah. I intended. <laughs> Uh, well, she you know, did ask him to open his encounter suit. Yes, Whoa, hey! <laughs> but God, you know, I she... hate Delenn. I'm just going to throw that out there. What? Oh. I really don't like her, especially in season one, particularly. She's so annoying, and she's the most annoying she's ever been in this episode. You know, if it's so important that she tells Sinclair all this stuff, why didn't she just leave him a message? Well, I think it was important for him to hear it. It was less important for her to tell him. Well, if it's that so. important for him to hear it, then leave him a message. It's just like, why be so coy about it? Why not well, say, I well, he's a bit late. You know, the, the president has just been killed. You know, he's got a lot on his plate. I know what I'll do. I'll leave him a message. But no, she doesn't. And the other thing that annoys me about her is that she, she has absolutely no faith whatsoever, does she? It's all about, yeah, she actually has to have proof, you know, physical proof before she goes ahead and makes this whatever she's doing. And I found that a little bit. I mean, you know, it's an interesting way of looking at it, I suppose. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things that I quite liked about her, because I feel like, and I, I hate to say humanized when we're talking about alien races, but I did feel like that that moment of doubt really kind of brought me closer to Delenn as a viewer, because she's, she's a lot of the time, the Mimbari, you know, very sort of just structured lifestyle and, and stiff and formal, and, you know, they, they mm. barely touch or hug or any of that kind of stuff. So the moments in season one where we see her softening, smiling, you know, doing the the chest touching thing that the, uh, the <laughs> Mimbari do. Um, those kinds of moments are really nice for me. I like I like that if, if we feel like we're seeing inside a little bit more. And this was absolutely one of those moments. She's whatever it is that she is is doing. It's something that scares her quite a bit. And I like seeing her scared. And I liked the moment of doubt because, you know, it, you know anybody who has, has, has done something that's really momentous like that, yes, you can have faith that it's going to turn out great at the end. But it is possible to also just feel truly scared and, and want some sort of reassurance and whatever it was that Kosh did she got that reassurance and and then was able to go on her way and that was for me that was a beautiful moment it is it was it is interesting is the way that the Mumbari sort of pick up the habits from the Volons in the sense they are you know they never really tell you what they're really thinking and she is mm -hmm. that enig that enigmatic you know I'm not going to tell him the full truth I'll let him hang on for a little bit longer and all this kind of stuff I suppose the way that rubs off on the Mumbari is very interesting 
Mm-hmm. And I and I would not have bought it if she had just left him a message because this is all top secret stuff that could get her in so much trouble, um, according to what she has said in the past with her people. You know, if the Mimbari find out that Sinclair knows, they're going to kill him. Like that's been stated blatantly. So if she leaves a message, there's a chance it could be intercepted. So I, you know, I, I can't see her at this point trying to, to doing that something that's that risky for Sinclair. Ask Lanier to tell him. Hmm. I don't think Lanier knows. No. Lanier seemed genuine. I don't know. Lanier seemed, you know, he's he's another guy who's sort of gone from amusing flunky to uh, some sort of trusted confidant of, of Delenn. You know, that shot of him just sort of sitting there with one tear streaming down his, his cheek as whatever happening, chrysalis, we're, I'll, I'll call it, is happening to Delenn off, off camera, you know. I, yeah, I mean, all, all of the characters, um, all of the characters seem weightier in this yeah. in this episode and and just i think everybody's in this one except for talia winters right uh is there anybody missing mm, no even know, even both um uh, jakar and his assistant are there too i mean uh yeah pretty much everyone is here Every, except yep. as you yeah even the doctor yep everybody's there the graph wasn't around yeah uh no poor no. poor Nagraf. poor poor <laughs> mi- underappreciated Nagraf. <laughs> what were you getting ready to say shannon oh just um i i back up almost everything that erica was saying about delenn's character and how the doubt made whatever this step she's about to take seem more momentous um i just remember being thrown out of the story for a second when she went to see uh kosh and i'm like wait a minute doesn't she need a mask what you know, what's going on here? That's like our first hint of just how different Mimbari physiology is from human physiology, apparently, because everyone well, else who's gone to see Kosh in his quarters has had to put on the big, huge uh, mask, and she didn't bother. Well, she, she had. Take a, she breathes out of it, though, doesn't she? She's yeah, taking she, a deep breath. Yeah, I saw yeah, you had your head. You had yeah. your head turned when she uh, picked up a, a, a breather mask and took a quick hit and put it back down. Oh, I missed that, too. Okay. I don't watch many television shows, but I watch them very, very well. <laughs> I used to know. I used to know. I used to be able, I could act this this episode out. I used to watch it so often. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Seriously, it's um, scary. It's scary watching it back fifteen years later. Even the sound effects, the way the wheel of fortune spins with a little sound effect, just just set off like a little Proustian rush of nostalgia. Little, <laughs> tiny little details, and an interesting thing, of course. For a British uh, viewer, is at the end of the episode where the where it becomes New Year's Day and the bells ring at midnight. Um, the music that's playing in the background is by the KLF, um, their famous hit really? single number really? one single, "What Time Is Love." It's not. It's not actually, but if you listen to it, it's uncanny. <laughs> oh, wow. Put the two of them together. They are uncanny. What time is love? <laughs> and you can't watch that episode without thinking the DJ is playing like nineteen mid nineties classics, Earth classics. <laughs> At this party, and the woman who screams, uh, and the woman who screams because she sees someone lying unconscious in the lift on New Year's Eve is a little bit of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good point. That made that my was notes actually, too. Yeah, but, uh, that was. Uh, let's um, real quick. Any uh, any other low points to this episode? Because unconvincing screaming woman was definitely on my list of low points. Mine was just uh, the senator, which I already mentioned. That's the yeah. other one for me. Sinclair's pajamas, fire risk. <laughs> I think he's got two different kinds and they're both similarly awful. <laughs> Steven, anything for you that you'd put on the negative side for this episode? 
Um, no, I, 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 I liked it. I liked this a lot more. I can't remember if I gave my thoughts on Signs Importance, but I thought that episode was just, you know, I, I kind of bailed halfway through that one because it was, it was kind of like the show arriving back from the future, just sort of like, you know, wave hints at me that it knows I'm not going to get, you know, and it was basically like, like, oh, here's 10 things that you probably will know later on, but you don't right now, blah, blah, blah. Okay, bye. And, <laughs> That's and so I, I actually got annoyed with that episode. And, and this one, it, it, it felt like there was, it, it, um, it earned, it earned the, um, the status that it was, you know, the, the amount of drama and intrigue that it was, it was raising at this point, whereas that I don't think it, it, uh, it deserved that in, in Signs Importance. So really nothing, nothing. I think it, it was a better version of Signs Importance in a way. Well, a uh, couple of other things, and then we really need to get rid of Steven so we can speak unfettered with Neil. Um, uh, first of all, uh, the Londo and the Jakar and the Narn versus Centauri and the destruction of the basic Quadrant 37 stuff, we've barely talked about it. And is that because it's actually comparatively more unimportant uh, part of the story or is it just the the rest of the stuff just eclipses it because it's so much more powerful? I'm too scared to talk about it. <laughs> I think it's just because you asked about the presidential assassination first. I would have been okay. just as happy to go on for this long talking about about that side of things because I, I quite enjoyed that side of the story. Um, I, one specific thing, you know how I, I'm always watching for character moments and, and performances and stuff. And I really liked seeing how Londo kind of has, has changed over this first season. But in, in this episode in particular, uh, after... He talks to Morden, um, Mr. Space Mob, as Stephen has has called him, um, and then goes back to his quarters with this ridiculous plan that, you know, he's supposed to say he's going to just take care of it. He walks into his quarters and Peter Jurisic, like his face is just, it is so perfect because he looks like he, he doesn't really believe that anything good is going to come of this. And yet he's willing to take the gamble. He's got this little smile on his face, like he's excited about something for the first time in a long time. And, and you know when he is delivering the lines to to veer saying just tell him i'll take care of it you can see that he is nervous about this but he is happy to be gambling i think is what it is and i just that subtle bit of performance on on that side of the uh the you know the, the b plot if you want to call it that is it, it just makes me shiver and then there was a lot of good jakar stuff too he starts to pour himself a drink and then for the first time all season he pours it back he doesn't yes. want it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's just it's such a huge thing. I mean, it was such a small scene, but it, it, that scene felt really momentous to me. And I think it it and the rest of the sh- this episode were directed very, very well. This was another Granite, Janet Greek one, right? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. not no surprise that it was it was so excellent. But just it, a scene that's that small, that's also that big. I just I love this show so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Jakar and Natoth are just shattered by this. They yes. are no longer the mustache twirlers. No, it, it, it's Pearl Harbor for them. Mm-hmm. You know, almost it's, quite it's, literally. It's it's Pearl Harbor and JFK all in one episode for different folks. Yeah, exactly, and that that's why I think the Quadrant Thirty Seven stuff doesn't. To me, it feels like it's you know it's shooting the Archduke of uh, of Austria, Franz Ferdinand, or something. That's you know, a big event, but it's really just setting off World War One at this point. And I think we'll we'll probably see more of what's to come in future episodes. I don't know. 
We'll ask you that. We'll ask you to elaborate on that a little bit. But uh, Neil, Shannon, anything else to say about the the Narn Centauri and Mob Guy stuff? Uh, just like Erica said, the character interactions and the character moments just somewhere a switch has been flipped and things are feeling so much more momentous. Morden no longer feels like just this weird guy asking, what do you want? What do you want? He's he's scary because he has followed through. We, we now see that he's followed through on these things. Um, we have, you know, Jakar, who has up until now been been mostly our stage villain. And he is the first one to you would think he would jump oh, the Centauri did this and, you know, we have to go back at them. No, he stops and thinks. They don't have the manpower. The humans don't. He starts thinking it through so logically to realize it wasn't anybody we know and I need to go figure this out. That is a level of maturity that we have not seen in Jakar more than maybe once or twice this season so far. Like we said, kicking everything up a notch. That's what this episode, this half of the story really does for all of the characters involved. Neil, final thoughts. Yes, I, I love the whole Londo Jakar dynamic in this in this uh, particular episode. And J- Peter Jurassic's performance just goes from broad comedy to <clears throat> really sort of multi-layered angst. Um, nibble to death by cats. I still use that um, <laughs> in everyday conversation. And there's a there's a tube station in London, of course, called Morden. So it's impossible not to think about Babylon Five every time I go to London. I love Morden as a character. And the scene in the garden where Londo is almost laughing, he can't believe that he's going to sort it out for him. That moment, and also the realisation that it's all gone pear-shaped late and all these millions of people, thousands of people have died. It's just incredible TV, really, and it really does hold up. I can't stress that enough. People will say, oh, it's dated now and it's you know, 20 years ago. But it's, there's nothing, been nothing like it since or before, and it's just fantastic, the level of complexity between those two characters. Fantastic. I love how Londo has the presence to note that, you know, he's not just doing this out of the goodness of his heart. Uh, you know, mm. what, what what's the price going to be? And Morden elaborately shrugs and says, you know, it'll be a favor. And then um, when they meet again and uh, Londo's freaking out a bit and talks, you know, 10,000 nar- 10, nards and Morden snaps back, I didn't think you cared. And when you get right down to it, he doesn't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's and as soon as he, as soon as Morden asked for the, you know, said we may sometime come for you and, and ask for a favor, Stephen pointed at the television and said, mm. "Space mob." Because <laughs> 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 that's what space mobsters do. You yeah. know, they they don't ask for money; they ask for favors. Speaking of, speaking of space mobsters, did you anyone ever notice that the little guy in the tent sounds just like Marlon Brando? Hmm. <laughs> to go back and watch it, he sounds just like Marlon Brando. You know, I hadn't caught that, but you're right. You're right. Uh, one last, uh, one last bit before we go through the jump gate, and two, two last bits. Sorry. Um, first off, our regular weekly Sinclair check for um, Erica and uh, for anyone else. How did Michael O'Hare do in this episode? And I think there's there's an interesting structure to this thing, and Stephen just sort of nailed it. When Sinclair spends this episode being late, missing an opportunity, not, you know, not that he's being lazy or ineffective or anything like that. He's just he's just he's just too late. Things have happened um, too late for him to have any impact on them. Does that make for a 
strong character and a strong performance, or does that really make him sort of secondary to everything else that's happening in the story? Well, I think it does both, honestly, um, because I think character-wise, it does make him a little bit secondary, but he's still sort of the heart of the show. So he's, you know, he he needs to be there and he needs to be experiencing this. For me personally, I think I've said before that I, I always tend to like Sinclair best when he is sort of not fully in control of the situation, when he's sort of indecisive or caught between a rock and a hard place. I, I think he plays that very well. And I think that that's very similar to this sort of, you know, theory of him being late for everything and just not quite, he's not on top of everything. And so he doesn't have the opportunity to try to cow somebody with a wide-eyed stare, or it, or he's not, he's not too far on the other side either, trying to trying to be, I don't know, just the opposite of that, too funny. And I, I like it when he's kind of in the middle. So overall, this is a pretty good, pretty good episode. And maybe part of it is because I just like the episode so much that it, it lifts him along with it. I do get a little bit uh, squeaky about the love scenes between uh, him and Catherine Sakai. But I think that it was better in this episode than it has been previously. I still cannot stand the look on his face just before he kisses her. It's supposed to be like high passion, but it's more wide-eyed acting and it makes me cringe. Um, but I, overall, I think it was it was okay. I still, the two of them, I just still don't quite buy the chemistry between the actors. It's almost like looking at my parents' kiss. Like, yeah, okay, I guess it makes sense, but I don't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else on the yeah, Sinclair I, I, front? I, yeah, his marriage proposal is was even less romantic than my own, and that's 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 going somewhere. Um, <laughs> I I, pr- I proposed to Erica over like text message, so that that, that <laughs> that's true. He's still more he's still more yeah. more romantic than we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like Sinclair in this episode. I like how weary he looks and how out of his depth he is. And the way he says nothing's the same anymore at the end is fantastic. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so much of a big fan of him when he's in action, action man mode. But in this episode, I really like the how ineffectual he is. It really is a far distance from uh, all the way back to the beginning to infection, the first episode produced, and uh, you know circling Kirk-like around the around Marshall Teague and the um, organic biosuit. It's just 180 degrees from what we see in this episode, where he does seem out of his depth and under a huge weight. It's been a long year, hasn't it? <laughs> it really, it, you know, it really has. And yet, and yet this episode, there's something about this episode that just feels entirely different from the 21 episodes that came before it there is something much more substantial to it i feel like anybody agree with me it did for me definitely mm-hmm. yeah i would say so neil i'm counting on you don't leave me hanging here yeah i like i think i like babylon 4 i think babylon 4 is up there oh uh, babylon, good point babylon squared even i think that's when it sort of clicks into place for me mm-hmm. yeah but yeah it's a fantastic episode well, uh, and then to wrap this uh, pre-spoiler section up, I want to put Stephen on the spot and uh, record for posterity where you think the story is going at this point, based on sort of the clues that you've seen and your sort of expectations of television, uh, sort of how, how it was being made back then, plus the fact that you know that this was sort of a prototype for a lot of modern serial storytelling. Where do you think this one's going? Where do you think? What do you? What are you expecting to see in in future eps? 
Well, I'm I'm intrigued to see what happens with um, the Quadrant Thirty Seven business and this this other. You know, I like that Jakar realized that there's somebody else out there and he's going to basically find them. So there, I think there's going to be an element there that's intriguing. Um, Delenn uh, is I I don't know what's going on with her. She's she's obviously different from the rest of the. Minbari. Um, <laughs> yep, good so job. There, there, there's, some, there's something special about that. Uh, Kosh. I don't know what's going on with Kosh. I have no idea what the Vorlons are all about other than being, you know, these these weird cryptic people that sort of walk around and drop these little hints everywhere and then go away again. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm hoping that there's there's something to go with that. And and alas, I've I mean I I've I've seen DVD covers of of. <laughs> of the future seasons that I don't look at anymore at all, just in case I <laughs> try to forget anything that I've seen that's coming down the pipe. So, um, so when the, uh, when the second season comes, um, which I'm looking forward to greatly because, uh, I, I like, I like new seasons, especially of first year shows. I mean, I, I felt there was a big difference between the pilot and, and the first season of the actual proper, uh, show, and there's, I'm always excited to see what, if any, changes have occurred in, you know, production or casting or makeup or anything like that, um, for the beginning of a new season. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to, to the next season. I'm not, I'm, I'm trying not to speculate on much because I don't know what to expect. I have a question for Erica. Are you going to show him a certain TV movie and when? Um, we haven't decided exactly what we're going to do as far as the movies and and where they're fit in or if we have i have forgotten we so have not what, we have not okay so once once we talk about that and decide what we're going to do for the podcast then that is that is when i will probably show show steven if we decide to skip some of the tv movies for the podcast a i think our our listeners might revolt because completionism is very <laughs> strong with the, the nerd culture um, but if for some reason we do decide to skip stuff then i will just show steven probably wherever it aired okay. yeah I am furiously kicking that can down the road. <laughs> we'll, we'll deal with stuff later. Because I know, I know some people who've, who've watched Babylon 5 for the first time and have started with that movie. Yeah, um, and I think I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know, if, if you're talking about in the beginning, um, yes, we we debated a little bit about whether to start with that or the gathering, and Erica won the day, um, but it wasn't. Yeah, but it didn't require a whole lot of arm twisting there. Um, and uh, for listeners who are new to Babylon 5, who are watching this along the same trajectory that we are, don't don't listen to me. Don't watch in the beginning until further uh, until until further notice, because in the service of telling a better story that sort of introduces you to the Babylon 5 universe than the gathering might have uh, it spoils a couple of rather big things yeah i i really like a good mystery that that has time to unfold and you know for for anybody who is listening to this podcast along with us i mean by this point you maybe probably already bought in and decided you're just gonna you know stick stick through it and i think i think in the beginning was was you know, maybe helpful for people who aren't sure that they wanted to to deal with some of the lesser episodes of season one to be like, see, look, this, you know, it, it comes to a point where it's it's this good. Um, I don't think we need that for Steven because, you know, as he said, he's legally contractually obligated to watch it with me. So he'll just have to wait for it. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, we have been going for almost an hour and we haven't even gotten through the jump gate yet. So, Steven, we're going to have to space you. Oh. <laughs> Again. 
again. Uh, But before we say goodbye to you, let's remind our listeners who are about to join Stephen in exile that we are watching Points of Departure next time. That is the first episode of season one. Season two. Season uh, two. Season two, excuse me. A bit of a caution before you watch it, if you have never seen Babylon 5 before... It, and it's only it's only really an effective caution if you're downloading the episodes digitally and you're not paying attention to the cover art on iTunes or ever what, and you're not paying attention to the cover art on the DVD box sets, because there is a spoiler or two that are in the opening credits for the season that they covered up in the airing on the, in the network airing but they did not cover up for the DVD box sets so oh, what a just still angry what yeah. a shot. The, the DVD box sets did something bad oh I'm sorry yeah sorry. we'll talk about that <laughs> We will talk about that. Uh, But anyway, yes, Points of Departure, episode 23, the first episode of season two. And we will have another special guest with us, I believe, uh, for that one. And Erica, you're going to be steering the ship on that one. Woo! And uh, as always, we're on social media on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And our website is at b5audioguide.com. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us on this one. Thanks for letting me join you on this uh, this wonderful podcast that I've quite enjoyed over the past year. And with that, we open a jump gate. And from here on, here be spoilers. So now that Stephen's gone, we can really talk about Babylon 5. Phew, phew. Everybody relax. <laughs> Neil, I don't know if I don't know if you heard, but on some of our earlier episodes, and uh, when Eric and I were on the Incomparable with Jason Snell a while back, you know, as soon as the spoiler horn rang, and our our, our reflex is to immediately yell, "Sinclair is Valen," just to get it out of our systems. <laughs> I just want to talk about hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lovely flaxen hair that um, that Erica is going to great lengths to obfuscate for her husband, which is just well, the, well ad- you adorable. Are. <laughs> well, you have gone to great lengths to obfuscate for me. Uh, okay, it's yes. Hard, uh, it's hardly worth it, is it, at the end of the day? It's true. not going to change much, is it, really? No, but, you know, we're, we're doing it for <laughs> one know. guy. So a little peek behind the glass for our listeners. I have just finished spending three hours digitizing and re-editing the Turner Network Television rerun of Points of Departure because it has the proper credit sequence with a bald Delin in it, just so Stephen and Erica can watch it without Erica having to spoiler cop. Mm-hmm. I was just wanted to say for the record that the Babylon 5 DVDs are the worst DVDs ever produced for a television show in the history of DVDs. It's really frustrating. I don't allow myself to get as frustrated as I might simply because I'm sort of resigned to the fact that they will never spend the money to, to redo it right, will never get the Star Trek The Next Generation uh, remastered stuff, but that they came so close to doing it right and then they weren't able to stick the landing is really frustrating. And that's actually going to be one thing that I'll be interested in, Erica. Uh, obviously, you'll be watching a, a digital dupe of a VHS tape, wow. off-air VHS tape. And still, there's a little part of me that was sort of watching it as it goes along. And the digital effects look indistinguishable. They look perfectly meshed 
with the yeah. rest of the video because mm -hmm. they're all at the same resolution and all this other stuff. I'll be interested to see what you think when you see it. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm very excited to have this opportunity. I've honestly kicked myself a bunch of times over the last year for getting rid of all of my tapes of Babylon 5 that I Same taped here. off of the air. Hey, um, because I would, I would have loved to have shown Steven some of that. And now I, I get to. I mean, I spent so many hours of my life both taping and then rewatching all of those. And I really feel like it's a different experience. And I feel bad for anybody who doesn't have access to these mm. anymore to see it. But to see it the way that it actually went out in the first place. It, because you can't tell when there's a special effects shot coming yeah. up. That was something Stephen mentioned just the other day. That he can always tell when something's going to you know, be special effectsy in Babylon 5. Because this the screen looks completely different for moments beforehand. I, yeah. I, I, I went as far as buying an NTSC player and an NTSC TV just so I could watch off air Babylon 5. Oh. And then, I just sold, then I sold them all. Well, sold all the PAL versions as well. So I'm kicking myself now. I just assumed that it was going to look fantastic yeah. on DVD. <laughs> and it is so shoddy. And they had every intention of it. And then we find out that although it was largely shot on the soundstage in 16 by 9 the production office, unbeknownst to Straczynski, was cheap and rendered everything for 4 by 3 and at NTSC resolution. And by the time anybody thought about doing it better, it just couldn't be done. Well, why not just put them on DVD in 4.3? That's my question. Why not just show it in 4.3? If the special effects are rendered at 4.3, then just, okay, okay, it was filmed in widescreen, very forward-thinking. But you're not very forward-thinking if you can't produce a television show that integrates two things together, and this is a science fiction show that attempts to do that, just yeah. put it on 4.3. I'd pay money just to see it, and even if it's VHS quality, because like you say, they will integrate better. Well, the DVDs are still better than what uh, Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. was doing at first. When Sci-Fi Channel got the rights to show Babylon 5 reruns and also started working on the possible spinoff, Legends of oh, yeah. Rangers, which... We'll, we'll get to that, maybe. Um, <laughs> but that. but I, I remember being angry because after they got through season one, all of a sudden, season two wasn't even reformatted to get the widescreen. And, and Sci-Fi, you know, announced, now in widescreen. Even the filmed soundstage stuff was just cropped top and bottom. So lots, lots of shots of Sinclair, of, of Sheridan, where you couldn't see his hair and you couldn't see his chin. Yes, I remember, I remember watching that and just being like, really, guys? This is ridiculous. Well, you'll see that on the DVDs when you get to the, um, the, yep. the programs that are set on ISN, because um, in order to keep the captions in, there's a shot where he's actually cut at his eyes. <laughs> Yeah. So they can keep the captions in. It's shocking. Uh, there's also that one shot, I forget the episode where in, in season one, where there's this sort of electronic uh, holographic fighting game, and that shot is actually yeah. stretched. Um, yeah. Anyway, but let's go back mm. to Chrysalis and beyond rather than, um, yeah. rather than looking backwards because this is turning into a uh, two hour episode here. <laughs> so, like I said before, we got rid of Steven. It's hard to look at Chrysalis without looking at the series proper. I submit to you that Chrysalis is actually the first real episode of Babylon 5. We've had 21 episodes of prologue, but the show that I think of is as Babylon 5 really starts in season 2 with the real run-up to the Shadow War, and I think this is the first proper episode of Babylon 5. What do you guys think? 
Nah. Babylon nope. Squared. Babylon Squared, if not signs important, I think that's probably the moment for me. I could get on board with the prologue description because quite often prologues do have important things that are necessary. And I do think that the your signs importance and, and your Babylon Squareds have important stuff in there. But I like the analogy that it's just the, the stuff that kind of comes before and the action starts with chapter one. And I feel like this is the first page of chapter one. So I will agree with you, Chip. I would definitely call it a turning point. This is the the point where you aren't just kind of interested and going along, but you have to keep going to see what happens next. This is the trigger for that, I think. Well, I take Neil's argument about, you know, Babylon Squared and Science Importance, but this is a real turning point. I mean, this the show feels so different to me as a result of this episode, and I'm not sure whether it's the president's assassination or Garibaldi getting shot in the back. I think it's less of the uh, Shadow War stuff here because it's just basically another escalation into what already happened in Signs and Portents as far as that's concerned. It's just the deal between Londo and Morden's made more explicit now. But it literally does feel, as Sinclair says, you know, nothing is the same anymore. We're standing at a crossroads. You know, it really does feel like this show is pivoting. But yeah, like you say, it's impossible to watch it, though, without the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? Uh, we know that so much is changing, even down to the casting. and the, It's difficult. You know that that's Sinclair's last episode, and it's, you always, I always watch it with that in mind. Yeah, and that's tough for me, because by this point, JMS knew that this would be Michael O'Hare's last season, that O'Hare is just fighting to get through. And even though... This was produced earlier in the season. You know, they had to know that there were problems and they had to know that there was going to be a change. And for all of this momentous stuff to happen around Sinclair and then for him to be just gone the very next episode, that feels weird. And I'm going to call up a comment on the spoiler discussion for this episode on our website. One of our regular commenters, Vord99, says, uh, I love Chrysalis, but it's also an episode that makes me sad because it's probably the single episode that most makes me feel that we lost something special with the departure of Sinclair. O'Hare is perfect when he delivers his last line, but it's not just O'Hare the actor. Sinclair the character is perfect. Quick mental experiment. Try to imagine Sheridan delivering that line with the same sense of being haunted by doubts about the future. I can't. For me, this suggests that there's something radically incomplete about Sheridan as a depiction of a human being. He never <laughs> has moments like this. At this point, the comment sort of veers off the rails for me. But um, I do feel like that there is so much untold all this weighty stuff around Sinclair, and then he's gone. That's, yeah. That may be good for the story and good for the show, but... but it's it, hard for the soul. <laughs> it's it, Yeah, and it's hard for the character, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why that conversation with the senator makes sense more in retrospect, because he's, like, causing trouble in the sense that he's asking too many questions, so they need to sort of, like, sideline him in some respects, mm -hmm. get him off that space station. So Get, it, get it, rid it, of him, yeah. They, they foreshadow it, really. And, you know, me not being a, a huge Sinclair fan in the past, I've watched him so much more closely now that we've been doing this all together. And I think I've developed a much, much deeper respect for his character just in paying such close attention to Michael O'Hare's performance. I am genuinely sad 
to think that he's not coming back. And that reaction completely surprises me. I was not expecting that at all. I was expecting, you know, confetti and streamers because I was excited (laughs) to move on. But I'm so not. I'm really bummed that we didn't get more of the story of this neat character. Maybe he's not portrayed the way that I would have liked all the way through. But the character itself is written pretty gosh darn well consistently. And I'm sad that we won't see any more of that. And it really did make, I managed to sort of block that out while I was watching this episode, because I always try to pretend I'm a newbie. But now that I'm thinking about it afterwards, that last line just, it kind of guts me. And for the record, I can absolutely picture Sheridan saying it, but where Sheridan, I feel like would have said it with sort of a, a sense of almost disbelief, what I got from from some Claire here was a sense of just sad resignation. This is the way the world works, and and it's just not the same anymore, and it's never going to be. And that is so true because it, we're not going to get to see him very much anymore. So yeah. bravo, Michael O'Hare. That delivery was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I think I actually responded to that comment that I can see Sheridan doing so, but not right now. What I was seeing was Sinclair has had those moments to bring him to this point in his life, Sheridan is about to go through those moments over the next three seasons, which will get him to a similar point in his life because we have the one who was and then the one who will be has just come on stage (laughs) or will come on stage next episode. Yeah. I was like Linus in the pumpkin patch waiting for the great pumpkin. (laughs) when, When they took Sinclair off the stage, I was really... Not being aware of any of the backstory, the rumor, or any other other stuff going there. There, I, I really, really wanted the character to come back and to have the occasional adventure with Sheridan and things like that. I really, for the most part, believed in, got appreciated, and even fanboyed and even role modeled a little bit. Sinclair. So it's hard. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it was hard for me to watch this episode was that I like the character so much. And to this day, I'm, you know, I'm still not entirely sure why other than the fact that uh, as an overly earnest person myself, I must stick up for an overly earnest character. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, this is a it, it's hard to look at, at Chrysalis without seeing this as uh, Michael O'Hara's farewell, even though he has a cameo coming up in The Coming of Shadows and, of course, the two-parter in War Without End. Neil Sinclair. I seem to remember at the time when I went back and watched, finally got my hands on uh, season one, the conventional wisdom was he wasn't very good compared to Sheridan. And the rumor was that he was fired. But I know that there's a, a different story to that now. But at the time, it was like... I, I can't even remember. There was some controversy about it. But I always read his sort of performance as being a symptom of the fact that he was messed with with his mind and he was slightly detached from the things because of all the experience that he'd been through. And that's why he wasn't... He almost sort of sometimes did feel like he wasn't actually... What's the word I'm looking for? He, yeah, he felt detached at times. And some people saw that as bad acting, whereas I saw it was quite an interesting character development. And that sort of ties into the weariness he feels towards the end of his season. But yeah, yeah where, I can't... where were you when I started watching this? If you would have given me that take going in, maybe I could have seen this in a slightly more positive light <laughs> well, all the way through. Well, it's all retros- It's all of the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? That's the thing. It, it, it is totally hindsight. I, I don't know how I would have reacted if I'd have come to Babylon 5 of episode one. And would I have stuck with it with a character like that? I, I don't know. Because he does sort of rub me up the wrong way slightly at times. But in retrospect, I can look back at it and put my own spin on it, given what we know what happens and what's coming. 
and the fact is you're going to become Valen as well. It all, it all like, kind of connects up. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm sad to see it go, yeah. Speaking of Valen, when uh, Delenn has, I can't remember if it's before or after she sees Kosh, but she says, she's saying something about blah, 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 Valen said, blah, 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 the prophecy, blah, blah, blah. And Stephen's just day like, would who's, come. Yeah. Yes. And so Stephen's like, who's Valen again? And I was just like, <laughs> like, uh, like uh, he's you know she she just said something about prophecy he's some sort of ancient prophet guy and he was like oh i, I thought maybe he was that uh, mimbari guy that came to visit uh, a few weeks ago and i was like nope he's some ancient guy <laughs> and of course it's impossible to watch this program this particular episode as well without me thinking about well, obviously it was Catherine who's supposed to go to Zahadim, I'm guessing, originally. Am I right in the scene? Uh, I think so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how, how much more interesting or different would that episode have been with a character that we'd known a lot more than Anna? Because we don't really know Anna at all, do we? Apart from a video message, and then she right. turns up. But, but we don't have that connection to the character. We just take it on board. We just trust that Sheridan had this, you know, he loved her. But it would have been more interesting, I think, if it had been, you know, a character we'd actually seen and had some connection to. So it's always a sort of infuriating level to watching first season of Babylon 5 because you know all the changes that had to be made to accommodate the problems that occurred. Yeah. He's a genius genius for getting, getting around that problem, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been doing criminology all year, uh, trying to figure out, okay, at this point, is this the old plan that JMS is writing from, or is he setting up the new plan? And part of my new plan signal is, if they mention Valen at all, I think that they're going with new plan stuff. That's uh, sort of my internal signal. But but, Because it's so easy to look back at it now as if it's all planned, isn't it? As if it was designed that way, which is the genius of obviously getting out of that problem. Yeah. In the original plan, Catherine Sakai would have gotten lost on the rim and uh, Sinclair and Delenn would have been married. Um, And that's just, uh, yeah. Uh, And (laughs) and I almost wish I didn't know that. Um, But Mm -hmm. because especially uh, with some of the uh, authorized uh, tie-in stuff, uh, the DC Comics and the uh, especially the novel that Catherine Drennan wrote, the Sinclair character gets really well rounded out. Uh, in the comics, you see how he and Garibaldi got together uh, on Mars uh, with a shadow influence there. You also, even before that in the comics, you see what happened to Sinclair when he got to Minbar, and you get a couple of those uh, video conference uh, calls between Sinclair and Sheridan that I would have loved to have gotten in the real show, you know, things like that. It is a complicated character who possibly wasn't the best leading man character to rally an audience behind. Mm-hmm. And I kind of regret that we never got to see that experiment play fully out. I think the show is better with Bruce Boxleitner and with uh, Sheridan, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a slightly more conventional path that uh, and a more conventional leading man in that way. And, and I guess it's just sort of, uh, it just goes to show you that there's a reason why conventions work from time to time. Mm-hmm. I'm just relieved that he came back and fulfilled, you know, the character uh, that they finally developed for him. And it wasn't just, uh, that's it, you're fired and you're gone and I'm never going to see you again. Mm-hmm. So I'm always relieved about that. Uh, it's so sad, isn't it? It's Babylon 5 is so sad, isn't it, when you watch it? Because it, so, it was so up against everything, wasn't it? It never had a, it never had a break, did it? No. <laughs> it had, n- no, no breaks. No breaks whatsoever. Uh, and every time I watch it, it's always in the back of my mind. It's like, the, you know the little show that could mm-hmm. yes that's a good way of putting it mm-hmm. through pure force of will anything else that we want to say about chrysalis 
in light of everything that we know that comes afterward, as far as the mysteries that it sets up? Is there anything that they do that didn't get paid off? Because from my perspective, it's practically perfect in that regard. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't Londo say, if you keep this up, you won't have a planet left to protect? Is that this episode, or is that yep. different? Yeah. yeah, it's and it sort of sounds like an empty threat there in the in the yeah. chambers. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great moment. Yeah, there's a couple of other touches here and there, uh, paying attention this time around. The fact that Londo and Morden keep meeting in a maze. Mm-hmm. It's like how oh, tangled yes. the path is going to get for Londo mm-hmm. through the rest. I mean, I just I didn't mention it earlier after Stephen left. I was actually fist pumping in the air when he started saying, "You know what, Londo and Jakar, there's something there." It's like, <laughs> yes. And then his comparison to the death of the um, Archduke triggering World War One. it's like, yes, that too. So it's cool to see that he's catching those things. Um, the other thing that um, I noted, and of course now I can't remember exactly which part, where Lanier questions Delenn or he, he, he stops and tries to, you know, are, are we sure about this? For a second there, it's like, okay, is Lanier reacting out of fear for his mentor, or are we already at the point where he is fearful for the woman he's fallen in love with? Or at least crushing on a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so those were a couple of things that I noted that ripples will move and, and happen down the line. Mm-hmm. The the uh, the one thing that I noticed was, and if I might be mistaken about this, tell me if I am. But the newscaster um, who is is reporting on the the explosion of Earth Force One, she's the same actress that comes back and yeah. is, uh, you know, after the the news station has been under the control of Clark's government for so long, she's she's somebody who's been in captivity and comes back and is crying and stuff. Is that it's her? Actress? I think you're right. Same, yes, yeah. It is, yeah. It is, it is. And she was. I, I I remember liking her so much later on, and I really. Th- you know, and I like her now. So I, I, I love it that they are able to get some of the same actors for just these tiny little parts that, that, you know, you could easily have had somebody else different do that down the line, but they kept the yeah. continuity of a teeny minor character like that. And it just makes me really pleased. We'll even have the same actor playing uh, President Clark. You know, we, the, the few times, the few times that we see him during this show, um, it's the same, it's the same guy. And I mean, I suppose that means they haven't gotten any like huge bigger jobs in the meantime. So maybe it's not the greatest (laughs) for them, but I I can't help but be happy about it. Uh, And the dead president is the producer. Yeah, Doug Netter. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. And given what uh, JMS learned years later about the uh, oh, yes. DV, the the rendering quality and all this other stuff, (laughs) that may have been actually prophetic. He deserved to die (laughs) for not buying that reference monitor. It was only five grand. Oh, oh, I forgot ahead. the one other thing that made me sit up and take notice was the fact that um, when Delane goes to see Kosh and he opens the encounter suit, we hear the wings. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Which makes up in part for the fact that the the lifting of the helmet was some of the most dodgy practical effects that we could have had. <laughs> so that, that and unconvincing screaming woman are my yeah. two low yeah. points for the whole episode. Not bad going though for season one, eh? No, mm-hmm. no, not at all. Um, and that maybe that's how we should wrap this up. Erica, Shannon, and I—we've been watching this thing religiously and regularly um, every two weeks. Uh, and Neil, of course, you're a passionate fan of this show. Let's look back at season one real quick. Was it a good season? I think we're all agreed that the show gets better. But with the benefit of hindsight and with taking a sort of a thorough look at it. 
Is this an underappreciated or underrated season of the show? I don't think it's a great season. I'll be honest here. If I had started watching Babylon 5 of episode one, I would not be sitting here now having this conversation with you. I do not think I would have had the patience to get to when things start getting good. When is it? Signs and Portents? Is that the first episode which is probably any good in season one? Maybe I, 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 I right. think you're talking to some folks who are rather more forgiving. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm talking about but, at the time. But I'm I take your point. If, I'm talking about if I hadn't come in, and if, if the episode I hadn't watched first was The Long Twilight Struggle, if I hadn't been for that, I don't know if I would have you know, been so engaged. Because I had a lot of other things on my, on my mind at that time. So I honestly don't believe I would have stuck with Babylon 5, as it pains me to say, because it is not great television. Looking back at it now in retrospect, there are hints of greatness and you understand how it all fits in. But at the time, it looked quite generic with a bad actor, not a bad actor or a bad choice of actor to play an action hero role. And in those early episodes, that's kind of what you get. And a lot of it was sub-Star Trek. And I know why a lot of these things happened. There was a lot of notes flying backwards and forwards with JMS and there was a lot of studio pressure and it took them a while to find their feet. But I am always relieved that I came in in the middle of season two. Although, obviously, it would have been wonderful to go through the whole thing from the beginning. You know, honestly, I'm not sure if I would have stuck with it starting at the beginning either. And I've said that, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I've said that before on the podcast. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad season. I think it's definitely not as bad as as people tend to say it is that haven't seen it in a long time. Um, I, because I had also remembered it as being kind of kind of crap. And then when I went back to rewatch, not this time, but my previous rewatch that was just a couple of years ago, I found myself really, really enjoying season one so much more than I had expected. Um, and that was coming back to it after a long rest. I hadn't watched it for, for many years. Um, so I think that there's a lot more strength there than people tend to remember. However, in this rewatch going back and, and looking at it with more under a magnifying glass for the podcast, I, I'm seeing sort of more of the cracks and and it, you know it, it's not feeling quite as strong as it did on that last rewatch so i i do think it's a rocky season i don't think it's a bad season i don't think it's a good season and i don't but i don't think most importantly that it's as, as bad as as people tend to remember uh, i think for me it shows sort of what do you like most about watching something or reading something or getting into a story if you're the kind of person who loves world building and loves seeing things slowly come together, I think you appreciate season one a lot more than someone who really wants the action and wants the big grand storytelling that we get uh, in later seasons. If they want to start with that, then they're going to be impatient and they're going to be tapping their feet and waiting for, okay, when's it going to get good? When's it going to get good? So I think it depends somewhat on on what you look for in a story. I found myself appreciating with this rewatch a heck of a lot more the characters being built, the characters coming together, plot lines being laid down. Um, now that I'm watching for these things, I'm appreciating a lot more just how everyone was able to come together and get this thing started. Um, as I said before, the jump gate, the puzzle pieces more puzzle pieces are in place and they're fitting together smoothly now. And all of a sudden we are seeing what the picture is going to look like when we finish it. I feel really shallow now. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's no reason to, because uh, I think you're, I think you're exactly right, Neil. I mean, if, if Babylon five had been canceled after Mm. Chrysalis, it wouldn't be even a blip. 
It it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't. People, I mean, all of all of the world building and character building just it doesn't count against infection. And I'm sorry, Erica Grail and TKO, <laughs> TKO. Um, you know, and, and things and things like that. You know, uh, going through this rewatch, I'm sort of looking at the show with slightly rose-colored glasses, and I found things to like about all of them, even even Grail, you know, David Warner, yay. But it's generic with hints of greatness, and it was an absolutely ballsy move of JMS to do that so he could establish his world building so that he could ramp up to seasons two through four. And some of season five, but we'll talk about that some other time. Um, but, you know, the story of the Shadow War, I'm not sure that it could have been made if it weren't for this season. And yet this season might well have killed the show entirely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very it's kind of an interesting conundrum because, you know, if you jump in someplace with that, there happens to be action um, and it grabs you and you're, you stick with it. And then going back, it's it's interesting to watch the characters develop, but you miss out on some of the you know excitement. Like we talked about none of us knowing what it would be like to watch Chrysalis without knowing everything. But unless you've got somebody who is committed at the very beginning to stick with it, they, they may not they may not do that. So I think, honestly, I think having a podcast like ours, where people are starting off and saying, okay, I'm going to I'm going to go along with this podcast, and I'm going to watch stuff. I think that's a, a really nice thing, because you get people then who are from the beginning going to stick it out. And, and I don't remember because I wasn't paying attention to Babylon 5 when it first aired. Was there advertisement? Or was it in the, the out in the wind that this was a five year plan? Or was this just another show that they were trying to get people to watch. I think the trade press, uh, the fan press, uh, magazines like Cinefantastique, that that was one magazine in particular that really embraced Babylon 5. But your Cinefantastiques, your Starlogs, your things like that, that was where cult TV got its press back in those days. Um, and of course, the internet community that uh, JMS tried to rally around it on CompuServe, of all things, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I, I think that makes a difference. Had I, for me as a viewer, if I knew that this was the beginning chapter of something that was going to continue, I might have a little bit more staying power to uh, to just stick it out because cause I, I'm with you, Shannon. I love world building. I think it's great. But if I didn't know that this was world building and that it was building mm-hmm. to something else, I, mm-hmm. I might have I might have bailed. Well, you've oh, said repeatedly, Erica, that uh, it's it's character for you. It's uh, yep. seeing mm-hmm. and and maybe that's a good uh, final question to talk about. You know, in this season, were the characters served well? Did the characters become interesting and compelling enough in their own right that if this had been the last season, the first and last season, would we look back on it as an interesting curiosity? But man, it had some really good characters in it. I think so. I think Londo particularly, because he changed so much. Um, I mean, obviously he changes even more, but even the small changes that he makes in season one, is that you would never guess in a million years that he would uh, get himself involved in a situation like he ends up with right back at the beginning. So, you know, he even has a little journey even through just, just to get him into that position where he makes that deal. Is fascinating in itself. It's really hard for me to answer that question simply because of all of the weight of everything that I know that comes later. So it's hard for me to strip away all of those layers and get down to what we just have on screen in season one. And I think, I think I probably would have given it like a 
a genial nod. Like, yeah, this this show is all right. They they did a good job with their characters. They, you know, Londo in particular moved from beginning to end. Even Jakar, I think, had a little bit of that. And and the rest of them at least were consistent. It wasn't like they decided midstream to change one of the characters and make them different. So I, I feel like the continuity of character on, on season one is solid, but I don't know that anything was so compelling that it would have made me really heartbroken that the show got canceled. I could see people churning out the fan fiction to to, mm-hmm. to finish the stories that that so were so obviously left unfinished. I I could see. To be fair, people will churn out fan fiction for anything. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, this was just slightly before it exploded, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So uh, when next we come back in two weeks, Shannon, Erica, and I will be looking at a television show that looks very different all of a sudden with a new leading character. And uh, it, it, it'll even, it will even look uh, different from a cinematography standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a, it, and it, feels, it will feel like an entirely new show. And then we'll slog through a few underperforming episodes that will make you think you're back in season one again and then the coming of shadows and then everything i think once the coming of shadows aired that was when there was no turning back for this show um so i'm go ahead i just can't I just can't wait until until the next episode watching that with Steven because because oh, yeah. as you said it be- it becomes a really it looks like a really different show and that's one of the things that he as a viewer really notices much more than I do and watches for are the subtle differences in production so I'm just excited not only for him to to you know have his mind blown by the fact that Sinclair is just gone um but but the fact that he will steven will then at the end of it be able to turn to me and tell me all of these little things that changed in the creation of the show that i never noticed because that's not the kind of stuff i watch for i almost wish he was going to be on next week too so he could list this stuff off for us but i'm sure you guys already know it well to pull that off you're going to need to sit him down with the dvds and make him turn away and then start with um start with the first scene after the credits because you're going to be watching a, a, a copy of a vhs tape true and he's going to have a little bit of difficulty seeing not just through the fuzz but the god-awful commercial breaks <laughs> very true you make an excellent point neil it has been fabulous spending this uh record amount of time with you uh talking about babylon 5 um any any opportunity to talk about babylon 5 well, you are on our short list, sir. But uh, thank you so much for uh, being here and for talking about this really hugely important episode of the show with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And in two weeks, points of departure. And until then, this is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Season 1 is in the can. Babylon 5 is produced by Babylonian Productions Inc. and distributed by Warner Brothers Domestic Television Distribution.